Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds uh, on January 29th, 2020, and um, we are a month away from the annual Dartmouth Pediatric Conference at Mount Washington. Registration is open. We are a week away from our first resident graduating Grand Rounds session of the year. Next uh, Wednesday, February, I guess that'll be the 5th, is uh, Josiah Schlopel is going to kick us off. So is he here? Are you ready? <laughs> but today we've got an excellent uh, presentation. Uh, our, our Act Grand Round speaker, Kathy, is going to introduce is actually kicking off our 25th annual, uh, I understand, Pediatric Bioethics Day here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. So we thank the Bioethics Committee, uh, or the Clinical Ethics Committee, or the Ethics Committee here at DHMC for co-sponsoring and, and helping bring our guest speaker here today. But, uh, our own clinical pediatric bioethicist, Kathy Shepkin, is going to introduce. Thanks very much, Keith. Um, again, it's really my honor today to introduce Dr. Lori Demmer. I do want to thank, as Keith suggested, the Clinical Ethics Committee here at the hospital, which uh, co-sponsors this, along with the Swigert Fund for Ethics Education. And in addition, I want to thank Dr. Sonu Betty, who is the director of the Dartmouth Ethics Institute at the college, who also helps co-sponsor this annual um, pediatric bioethics lecture. So again, I have the honor of introducing Dr. Demmer, who is the medical director and division of genetics and metabolism. I met her at the uh, associate program director meeting in, we were in California, I think, just as Angela, her daughter, was matching here. So I have met her and crossed paths with her multiple times as a pediatric program director. She's currently at Levine Children's Hospital and Carolinas Medical Center. She bleeds green. She is a Dartmouth alum, graduated here in undergrad, started medical school at Dartmouth Medical School before transferring to Wash U. She did her internship and residency at St. Louis Children's Hospital and a fellowship in medical genetics at Washington University School of Medicine. Her CV is very robust, a lot of papers, a lot of presentations. She has been the president of the American Board of Medical Genetics, the chair of the ACGME for the Medical Genetics RRC. She has served on the Ethics Committee at Carolina since 2013, and her research has really been in the impact of expanding genetic technology in medical practice, ethical issues related to genetic testing and technology, prenatal diagnosis, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and near to my own heart, improving genetic educational opportunities at the undergraduate, graduate, and postgraduate levels. So with that, we welcome Dr. Demmer. Thank you. All right, are you good to go? All right, can you hear me? Great, well, it's great to see so many people here. I was just uh, commenting that at our Grand Rounds, everyone seems to watch it at home or in their offices now remotely, and we don't get many people actually in person. We feel like we're kind of talking to the wall, so it's wonderful to see you all here. Um, I was here two years ago speaking about genetic testing, and uh, someone asked me a question about ethics. And I said, oh, I have to give a whole lecture to answer that question. And so I promised to come back, and here we are, uh, talking about ethics of gene testing and hopefully uh, ethics of gene editing as well. So this is an ethics discussion, really, not a lecture. So hopefully you will be uh, making comments and asking questions as we go through. Don't wait till the end. Just yell out, uh, put up your hand, or whatever. OK? Um, let's see if we can get this going. Okay, I have nothing to disclose except that uh, you heard Kathy say I don't really have any formal training in ethics. I really think of myself as a pediatrician and a medical geneticist, but there is so much ethics within genetics that uh, we're kind of force-fed that training as we go along. Our objective, objectives for today are really to talk about uh, genetic testing, primarily in children, but we're going to hit on some other things as well, including pre-implantation genetic <laughs> testing, and then move on to uh, gene editing. And we're hopefully going to talk about some cases and get your um, thoughts on those as well. So just a quick review of the principles of medical ethics, which I, I hope are familiar to everybody respect for autonomy, um, capacity to think, decide, and act on one's own free initiatives, 
And in genetics, we like to help the patient come to their own decision by providing them all of the information and then supporting them in whatever decision that they make. Obviously, uh, beneficence is to really to try to do what's best for the patient, and maleficence is we're always weighing out the risks and the benefits and trying to do at least the, the least harm for the patient in doing the best good. And then justice is really to be fair, and everyone should be treated the, uh, treated the same and to strive for fair allocation of resources. Okay, so let's talk about genetic testing in children. Um, so every year I get a call from a pediatrician. So-and-so's mom just called me, six years old, Johnny, um, and his father was just diagnosed with Huntington disease. Mom wants Johnny tested for Huntington disease. How do I go about doing that? Should we do that? You want six-year-old Johnny to know if he's going to develop Huntington disease when he's 35, 40 years old? Mm -mm. No, we really don't. We really want to wait until the child is old enough to decide for him or herself if he's going to get a late-onset disease, right? Not going to present until 35, 40 years old. Um, and he can decide that for himself when he's an adult if he wants that information. So don't want to test for late-onset diseases, especially if there's no treatment. So we're concerned about the child's autonomy, uh, privacy, and also not doing any harm to the child, right? It turns out that only about 20% of people that are at risk for Huntington's will go ahead and have the gene testing done. Most of them end up not getting the testing done. They don't want to know. So that's not something you would want to put on a child at, at that age. Okay, what about genetic testing in children and other uh, conditions? Predispositional testing. What's pre predispositional testing? That would be a, something that you're predisposed to, but maybe not necessarily going to get. For instance, we talk about hereditary cancer syndromes. Like, not everybody with the BRCA gene will get breast cancer or ovarian cancer, right? Not everybody with Lynch syndrome will get colon cancer or, uh, endocrine or um, endometrial cancer or ovarian cancer. So you, you have a predisposition, but you're not necessarily going to get the cancer. However, if we can um, convince ourselves that there's going to be a defined medical benefit during childhood, then we do want to test the child, right? Because then we could do something during childhood. That would make sense. We call that actionable. So if it's going to be actionable, yes, absolutely, you want to test. Can you think of some conditions where that would be the case? Some childhood cancer conditions. Like familial adenomatous polyposis, where you can actually get polyps during the childhood years and get cancer before the age of 18. I put some other examples down here. Retinoblastoma, you would get retinoblastoma in the first year or two of life. <laughs> MEN 2A, where you can get thyroid cancer. We, in some cases, will take out the thyroid by age 5. Von Hippel-Lindau is another. So these are some... Um, conditions where we actually start screening during childhood. So we're pretty aggressive about tracking down these kids and doing testing. So we would, we would call that a, a good thing to go after these kids and do, do gene testing in that instance. Okay, what about carrier testing for autosomal recessive conditions? Any reason to test children for those? If you're not going to have any symptoms, if you're just a carrier... Not really, right? So traditionally and classically, I put it up here on the top cl classical thinking, classically there really isn't any reason to do testing. Um, and so we typically will wait until the child is old enough to decide for themselves if they want to know if they're a carrier. Um, but you don't want to wait too long because, you know, as we all know in pediatrics, adolescents can get pregnant too. So um, as... As we're doing more and more testing, we're finding out that if children are diagnosed as carriers for whatever reason, it's probably not doing them harm. Um, and so we're a little more relaxed in doing carrier testing for children now compared to how we used to be. So, for instance, with newborn screen, yeah, we have a question. What do we consider old enough to decide? What do we consider old enough to decide? That's, and I, that varies for each patient. Um, you know, somewhere in adolescence, um, but it really, it varies from person to person. So somewhere I'd say kind of in middle adolescence, but it really varies a lot from person to person. So depends on how mature they are. 
Um, so because of newborn screening, there's a lot of carriers that have been diagnosed with cystic fibrosis and other conditions now, and they really haven't undergone any harm because they know the carriers for cystic fibrosis. So, and they've done studies now to show that children diagnosed as being carriers, they really haven't undergone any adverse effects. So, so we're, you know, starting to loosen the belt around testing children for autosomal recessive there to find out their carrier status. Also, we're doing a lot of whole exome sequencing now. Whole exome sequencing is when you, a child comes in, you don't know what they have, you can't figure it out, so you sequence all of the genes, basically. And when you do that, you also um, get samples on, on the parents. You do what we call a trio, child and parents. And you, when you do that, it's standard now to offer them, because you're sequencing all of their genes, it's standard to offer them to look at genes that are actionable, that don't have anything to do with why they're coming in. What are actionable genes? Well, those hereditary cancer genes we talked about, like BRCA, Lynch syndrome, and also things that may cause sudden death, cardiac genes. Um, so the American College of Medical Genetics has a list of about 52, 53 genes that we always offer to families. Would you like us to look at these genes? And they can opt in or opt out. Most families opt in. They, they decide they want to know if there's something that you know, could benefit them, even if it doesn't have anything to do with why their child is coming in for this testing. Um, so we're finding out that, you know, a lot of those things are present in children. We could just, we could find a BRCA mutation in a child. Ten years ago, if you told me that, I would have thought the world was coming to an end. Now, mm, not that big a deal. So we can live with that, especially if it means something good for the parent is going to come out of it. Okay. And then um, timing of carrier screening, again, can be tricky when we're talking about adolescents. Um, so, because adolescents can get pregnant, so maybe we should be erring on the side of doing carrier screening earlier rather than later. Um, and we can make an argument for that as well. Okay, any other comments on that? Okay, so let's go to a, a case. This is a case we had in the PICU. <clears throat> last year, it was a five-month-old that came in, had a 17-year-old mom, and the baby had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, was in need of a heart transplant. Also had failure to thrive, some brain abnormalities, had metabolic studies that were sent off that suggested mitochondrial dysfunction, and they wanted to know what labs that I recommended in order to make a diagnosis. The heart doctors were all over this because they wanted to know if the baby was going to be a candidate for a heart transplant or not. They didn't want to put the baby up for a heart transplant if, you know, wasn't going to be a viable candidate. Um, so I'm thinking that the baby probably has an autosomal recessive problem with, um, that's involving the mitochondria. So not all mitochondrial disorders are maternally inherited, like you probably taught. The more severe ones that present in the newborn period usually are autosomal recessive, actually. So again, I'm going to jump to an expedited whole exome sequencing for this patient. Um, and I'm expecting I'm going to find an autosomal recessive gene mutation uh, in a protein that's involved in the mitochondria. But uh, So I'm going up and I'm getting the family history, and the mom is 17. It turns out there's an 18-month-old running around the room as well. So it's her second baby, not her first. Um, and in the room with her is her dad. So do we have any red flags here now? She's 17. It's her second baby. I take the family history, and she can't tell me anything about the father of the baby. She can't tell me his medical history, his family history, just that he's not involved, and she doesn't know anything about it. Yeah, she thinks they're the same father. Hmm? Are we concerned about who the father is, are we concerned about incest? Yeah. And because her mother has not been involved at all, but her father has always been there. And the nurses come up to me and like, Dr. Demmer, can you come talk to me outside? And they say this interaction between the mother and her father is very peculiar. So, um, so they're very concerned about that possibility. So we actually have a genetic test for that too. It's called a SNP microarray. Um, so, and it wouldn't be unusual to send a microarray in a baby that had multiple anomalies like this. So I, I actually order both tests. Um, and sure enough, six days later, because I send this whole exome as an expedited test, we get the result that we expected. Baby does have mitochondrial disease. 
Um, it's autosomal recessive, it's likely lethal, it's, it's uh, what we expected, it's not good. And then six days after that, we get the SNP array that comes back. Um, it didn't show any deletions or duplications in the genome like you usually look for in a microarray, but it did show that there was 25% of the genome had regions of homozygosity, and I don't know if you can see them there, but they're all the shaded boxes uh, within the chromosomes are all homozygous. And by homozygous, I mean they're identical on the mother's chromosome and the father's chromosome, identical by descent. Um, so what does that mean? Well, we can look at our little chart here, and if you have 25% identity, oh, where'd that go? 25% identity, that means that the parents of this child are first-degree relatives. Okay, so how do we get first-degree relatives? What are our choices for first-degree relatives? Parents could be siblings, but this girl didn't have any brothers, so we're ruling that out. Or parents could be a parent-child, could be, right. So what we're concerned about, obviously, is father-daughter in this case. Um, and so I called the social worker when I got this result, and I think she was waiting for my call because um, it kicked off a series of events, and actually two hours later, the father was in custody. So, um, so that's exactly what happened. So genetic testing can be pretty powerful, even though this wasn't our original intent when I got the consult. Um, Lori, I think I asked you this question yesterday. Yeah. You did the genetic testing. Was the mother or the now, grandfather slash father aware that this could have been a byproduct of the genetic testing? Yeah, so the mother was there, um, and there was the, fa the father slash grandfather was not there at that time, and we did get informed consent because we sent a whole exome sequencing, and we always get informed consent, and we always bring that up as a, um, we don't bring up consanguinity as a possibility, but we do bring up um, the idea of the father might not be the father that we're expecting. And that was all just kind of brushed over. Mom didn't make any comments at that point. So, yeah. I mean, she's the only kid, so, yeah. Any other comments on this case? So the, in this, we like to send off the child and both parents. In this case, we were only able to send the child and the mom because she told us the father wasn't involved and the father, she hadn't seen the father in many months. So we, we went with that. We just did a duo instead of a trio. So for that test, the whole exome sequencing, we didn't have the father. For this test, the, for the microarray, we only had the baby's blood, but that was enough to show us the, um, that the, parents were first degree. Yeah, I don't have that information. I assume that was all done, but um, I didn't do it. Yeah, that would have been part of the standard protocol to test the other child. I think what happened in this case was that the baby did pass away. The mother and the child were put in foster care, and then they would have been worked up by whatever system um, they went into there. But that would have been standard. They would have looked. I, you know, would assume that the father was also the father of the other baby, and that that would have all been demonstrated in part of the court case and everything. Yeah. He she would be considered emancipated at that time because she had two children exactly. But that emancipation is very much very state by state and uh, uh, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. But yeah. most, most jurisdictions, yeah. even if the 17-year-old isn't actually legally able to consent to their own treatment, they're generally considered able to consent for their child's treatment. So remember the baby being tested. So the grandfather would have no sort of say in that. Right. I need, yeah. So let's move on to the next case. We have a four-month-old with a... Uh, Again, multiple anomalies of ESD, microcephaly, severe short stature, feeding, failure to thrive and feeding problems, low tone, dysmorphic features, and developmental delay. We had done some previous testing on this baby that came back negative. Again, I wanted to send off whole exome sequencing. Um, again, we wanted to send it by a trio with both parents. Only the mom had um, come in so far with the baby. 
but she said that the dad, first she said she didn't think the dad would be available, then she talked him into it, said he would be available. So I think we had sent him a kit to his house and he did it, he spit into it. So he wasn't actually there for the informed consent, um, but the mom was. And then we get a call a week later from the lab. They say that the, the first thing they do is they look at the markers of the parents compared to the baby to make sure the mother is the mother and the father is the father. And the markers did not identify the gentleman as the patient's father. Um, and they wanted to know if there was any potential fathers that we could test. So I'm like, yeah, sure, we'll send you number two. And if that doesn't work, we'll send you number three. I'm like, what, what do you think? I mean, <laughs> sure. So they're thinking about it from the lab standpoint. And we, are, of course, are stuck with the, the patient and have to figure out what to do. Um, so after that, when, the, when they finally sent the report, I looked at the report, and this is what the report says. It says, the sample from the father was submitted for variant segregation analysis by targeted testing. The sample from the mother was used for analysis of the data and reported. Now, if you were you know, a family or even a primary care physician reading that report, what, would that make any sense to you? No, right? So, and the reason why the lab does that is because they see the child as their patient. They don't really care about the parents. The parents are only there to help them get their lab analysis done. From a legal standpoint, they really, it's really only the child sample. And the, and the sample is in the name of the child. The parent's blood just kind of comes along. This, it's not registered or anything like that. So they feel like they don't have to get involved with this. We do as clinicians, but they're, they're happy with just putting down the minimum. There's no, you don't see non-paternity anywhere in there. They're just not even going to get involved with that. Um, and, and that's okay because I don't want the lab dealing with that. You know, clinicians, um, the question is, what are we going to do now with the family? Well, I don't do anything before I call the hospital attorney and say, okay, now what do you think this is a situation? What do you think we do? And, you know, the answer is we do something different each time this comes up. And this comes up, um, I'd say, maybe twice a year for us. We, we're a pretty volume-driven place, pretty big place, and it comes up a couple times a year. Um, and each case is different. In this case, the parents weren't married. They um, weren't living together. The father had three other children, and he wasn't, he wasn't that involved in his child's life. I don't know if he really was involved at all. Um, and so um, we talked to the mom, and she said she would be more than happy to explain this to the dad and tell him that he wasn't the biological father. And, um, and then she did that, and then he called us back. And we went over it again with him, and he said, you know, that's fine. I kind of figured that was the case anyway. So <laughs> he said, all my, all my other kids are healthy, so, you know, I didn't think this one, this was mine because she's not healthy, so whatever. Um, and then we asked the mom if there was another, uh, another dad that we could test, and she said, well, there is, but he's dead. So that kind of ended things right there. Turns out he's not dead. He's just totally not going to answer mom if she calls him or anything. So um, so we, we still don't have an answer. I know this, this kid has something, and we still haven't figured out what it is, and it really bothers me. But, um, but we will figure it out eventually. Um, it's just not going to be with help with, of dad's sequencing. So, um, so that's frustrating. But the, the point is that when we do the um, informed consent for these tests, we take about like 30 minutes with the family beforehand. And we will go through all of the reasons why um, this could get, you know, kind of messed up. So we will say, for instance, before when I introduce the test, I'll say, when we do this test, we need to have the biological mother and the biological father come in and have the samples done. So I kind of introduce it that way. And then one of, my, one of my genetic counselors will sit down with them when it comes time to get the samples. And she'll say, you know, reasons why this may not work is people don't realize they, or they forget, you know, maybe you used an egg donor. That's, you know, that won't work. Maybe you used a sperm donor. Maybe the child was adopted and slipped your mind or, you know. <laughs> somebody had a bone marrow transplant, got treated for cancer at some point. You know, that's not going to work either. Um, or if you're not the actual mother or you're not the actual father, this is not going to work. So we're pretty blunt about that. Um, and so it's good to bring it up, up front before you, before you do the test. Any questions about that? Okay, so if we can go on to the next case. So uh, here's a case. This is a couple that I saw a couple of months ago that asked me about this. It's a six-year-old girl, been diagnosed with rapidly progressive bone marrow failure and a myelodysplastic syndrome. It turns out she has an autosomal recessive condition called Fanconi anemia. 
Um, and she needs a stem cell transplant, but they do not have an HLA match donor. So um, she's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place right now. Um, so the parents would like to have another baby, and they want to do so with IVF and pre-implantation genetic testing. So with that, they want to be able to screen the embryos so that they can screen to find um, an embryo that has the HLA match to their daughter, but also an embryo that doesn't have Fanconi anemia. Okay, and if they do that and they're successful, then they can use the cord blood from the resulting infant to go ahead and transplant, do the stem cell transplant on the affected daughter. Is everybody good with that? Okay. Um, so just in case uh, people don't know about pre-implantation genetic testing, um, it's a process of screening embryos for genetic abnormalities prior to transferring the embryos back to the mom's uterus. Okay, so you use it in conjunction with IVF. You create the embryos, um, you let them grow up until day five or six, and then you biopsy, you take about five to eight cells out for your genetic testing, and you freeze the remainder of the embryo, okay? You do the DNA analysis um, for whatever condition is in question. In this case, you're doing DNA analysis for two different things at the same time. Um, and if you do all that and you get embryos that meet the qualifications from the DNA standpoint and are still good-looking um, embryos, um, and you transfer them to the mom, then your live birth rate is about equal to that of an IVF cycle in general, which is about 42%. And there's no increase in birth defects compared to a regular IVF cycle from having the biopsy and, and the freezing done. So, um, okay. So we started doing PGT about let's see, 25 years ago. It was 1993 it first started. And it was first done for... Um, chromosome rearrangements like um, Robertsonian or reciprocal translocations, and we were doing it by fish, okay? And then started doing it for single gene disorders like um, autosomal recessive or X-linked disorders like cystic fibrosis or spinal muscular atrophy. So very serious, untreatable, or lethal conditions typically is what it was done for. Um, and th so those were common, and, you know, that was a good thing because it allowed couples that wouldn't otherwise venture to have children, it allowed them to have children. So it was, it was a good thing. Um, and then people started offering it for what I'm calling questionable indications. And I'm calling it questionable because some people question it. Not that everybody questions these, but some people question them. And the reason why they question them is because they may involve um, discarding potentially unaffected embryos. So some people are not okay with that. Okay? Some people are. Some people aren't. For instance, your predisposition disorders that we talked about with the cancer, um, autosomal dominant cancer syndromes. People are offering this for having a BRCA mutation, for instance. Um, so not everybody with a BRCA mutation may get breast cancer or may get ovarian cancer. So you may be passing by embryos that are never going to get cancer. You know, are, people, are you okay with that? Creation of the HLA-matched stem cell donors. For each embryo that that woman creates, that, that they create, for that couple, there's a 16% chance that any given embryo will meet the criteria for both a Fanconi gene and HLA match. So the other 84% of embryos are being passed by, discarded, um, and some of them will be totally healthy. So some people are not okay with that. Sex selection. Um, I used to do a lot of counseling for PGD when it first started, and I haven't look this up in a number of years now, because now I'm only primarily doing pediatric genetics. So um, I looked this up. This survey came out in 2018. Turns out now 73% of clinics in this country are offering PGD for sex selection. It just blew my mind. I had no idea that many were offering PGD just for sex selection. So that means you're destroying without any genetic, yeah. Abnormality. So that means you're passing by 50% of the embryos just because they're the wrong sex. So you can see how some people are not okay with that. And some people think it's totally fine. Um, so the, in the United States, unlike a lot of other countries, uh, especially in Europe where there's the other places this is done, um, is there's, there's no oversight agency to regulate PGT. So it's just people do whatever they want. Most of the PGT done here in fertility clinics are done in private fertility clinics. So 
they do, they're on their own, basically, and they do what they want. Yeah. I think it's increasingly popular um, because so many are offering it, but I don't, we don't have those numbers. Um, this was done, this survey was done as a telephone survey to all of the clinics. Um, and they had like a, you know, very high response rate, greater than 95% response rate. And they were very forthcoming in saying that they did, but I don't have the number. They didn't give the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Just if they're doing IVF, they, I mean, that if they're doing IVF um, without PGD, then they're doing IVF because they, the, for fertility reasons, because they can't get pregnant. Right, and they, but it's usually because they, um, they can't get pregnant, so they're, they're lucky if they get one or two to, you know, that are good, and then they freeze, then they can freeze the rest and use them at a later time. But if they're coming in just to have PGD for sex selection, it's not, they may have underlying infertility, or they may not, most of the time they don't, they just want to have the, to do this for the genetic testing part of it. So in that case, they don't have the underlying infertility issues, and they have a much better chance of getting healthy embryos. Does that make sense? The standard of care, what happens with the unused embryos? Um, no, because there is no standard of care, right? Because there's no regulation. So um, ideally, you could turn them over to research, but as we're going to see in a few minutes, you can't do at least federally funded research on embryos in this country. Yeah. Um, not that I am aware of, although I must say I did not search for that before doing this. What people do do is they come from other countries, like medical tourism, they'll come here and, you know, for PGT to get that done that where they can't do it in other countries. Um, so this is a fertility institute. They're, I think their biggest clinic is in New York City. They also have one in LA, they have them other places. Um, and they're the, they're the only clinic that I know of that actually out in your face advertises gender selection, number one clinic for gender selection. And not only that, but they also advertise that they will choose your baby's eye color. And they're the only clinic that I'm aware of that does this. So there's 10 genes that contribute to eye color. Most, most of that eye color determination is within um, one gene, the OCA2 gene, called oculocutaneous albinism 2 gene. And there are some SNPs within that gene. And they look at these SNPs in the parents and if you are able to have, a, let's say you want a blue-eyed baby, if you're able to have a blue-eyed baby, then they will tell you which of the embryos you've created are going to have the blue eyes. So it's not like they, if you're destined to have only brown-eyed babies, they can't make you have a blue-eyed baby and vice versa. But they can tell you which of the embryos you've created will have blue eyes, and you're going to pass by all of the brown-eyed or green-eyed or whatever embryos, and you're not going to use them. And, and uh, people are totally fine with this. And, and a lot of people aren't totally fine with this. So I just think that, that it's amazing that we've come from 25 years ago just doing this for serious lethal diseases to now we're choosing eye color. Um, amazing. How much does it cost? Um, it, and I, I don't know what their prices are. They don't advertise them, but I'm going to guess that it's um, probably about $15,000 every cycle that you try it. That's just a rough, very rough estimate. I don't know exactly. Well, for PGD, because, again, because women with this, coming for this indication, usually don't have underlying fertility issues. They don't like to transfer more than one or at most two. Um, so, but they will, you know, use this. They go through kind of the same cycle where they give them a lot of hormones and they create a bunch of embryos. And then a bunch, that, that varies a lot depending on the person's age, but, you know, six, eight, ten, you know, it's, it's. It varies a lot. <laughs> Not you can't choose height yet, but there's nothing to stop people from doing that once they get those genes figured out. 
There are some genes on the X chromosome. I'm not going to tell you what they are because I don't want you to go do it. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on. Um, actually, we're going to skip these conclusions because you've been such a great audience. And we're going to move on to CRISPR. Um, so we have some time to talk about gene editing. So CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. And unless you're a molecular biologist, that's not going to mean anything to you, really. Um, but the important thing, and this even isn't so important, is that it's derived from a bacterial immune system, which is designated to cut viral DNA. And the reason why bacteria do this is they don't want to get reinfected again with the same virus. So that's kind of the basis of what CRISPR does for the bacteria. What it does for us is it cuts DNA in a weak, and it cuts DNA basically. And it cuts DNA in a place where we tell it to. And that's it. That's all you have to know about CRISPR. It cuts DNA, double strands, both strands. It cuts it right where we ask it to. And it's simple, it's versatile, it's precise, it's fast, and it's inexpensive, and that's why it's just taken off. Um, so what are potential uses for CRISPR? You can theoretically treat genetic disorders with it, even, but there aren't, you know, only a small percentage of the population have rare genetic disorders. I like to think that, you know, it's a big thing, but really it's only a small percentage. Um, but cancer, big cancer is a big deal, big money in cancer. <laughs> If you could treat cancer with CRISPR, that would be a really big deal, right? And then there's also the opportunity for global health, changing global health with CRISPR. So, um, so that's where we're going with this. So here is the CRISPR molecule. It's that big blue blob there. That's a protein, and that is your molecular scissors. That's what cuts your DNA, okay? How does it know where to cut? Well, what you do is you include a piece of RNA that matches here, in about 20 base pairs, it matches the DNA right where you want it to cut. So you make, you make this RNA, and you make it match that DNA. And so when you put it into the cell, it starts scanning around the DNA, and when it finds this perfect match here, it sits there, and it cuts. It cuts both strands of the DNA, and that's it. That's CRISPR. It's what happens after that that can either be miraculous or cause you a lot of problems, okay? So if you've given it a piece of donor DNA that you would like to replace, then if you're lucky, that donor DNA will be put in there, and then you will have edited your gene. You will have fixed your gene. And that's what everybody hopes will happen with CRISPR. Um, but in, in many cases, it's just not that simple, and that's why people worry about the safety effects of CRISPR, which we'll go into a little bit, but I don't get stuck into the details too much. So is everyone good with that basic explanation? Okay, good. All right, so um, once you do the cut, the cell has to come in and repair the DNA. So the cell has repair, DNA repair mechanisms. And there's two basic types. So the type that is around most of the time, the dominant repair type, is called non-homologous end joining. And that is present in all phases of our cell cycle and in, primarily in our non-dividing cells. So think of our cells that aren't dividing like the brain, the heart, the muscle, a lot of the cells don't divide. And what happens is it just starts sticking bases on the end of that where the cut was, sticking random bases on there or taking random bases off. What's going to happen if you do that? You're going to create mutations, right? Frame shift mutations. Not good. So basically, you're knocking out the gene. You're, you're taking out a gene, okay? Now, if that's your intention, if you want to use CRISPR to knock out a gene, and a lot of um, in, in basic research, that's what a lot of biologists want to do. Like, we want to study this gene. We're going to knock it out. We're going to see what happens when it doesn't work anymore. That's great. Um, but typically, when we think of editing a gene in medicine, we want to fix a gene. We don't want to knock it out. Sometimes we want to knock it out, but a lot of times we want to fix it. Um, so that's what the NHEJ does. More often, it's going to knock it out. And that's our primary repair pathway, especially in non-dividing cells. Um, so you have to be careful. You may think you want to, you're going to fix a gene when really you're just going to knock it out. So we call those on-target effects. So you have right where you want it to be, but it's doing the opposite of what you want. Okay? On the other hand, there's another repair mechanism called homology-directed repair, and this is kind of the good repair. This is what we want to happen. But this only works in dividing cells. Which of our cells are constantly dividing? 
Bone marrow? Stem cells? Skin cells? That cells of the embryo, right? Um, so it uses a template strand. It'll use this, the strand of DNA, either the one that you provide it from the outside, the one that you, you know, has the correct DNA, and it'll use that, and it'll put that in and fix it. Um, and that would be a good thing. So now you're editing the gene and fixing it. So that's a good thing. That's what you want. Okay? Does that make sense? All right, good. I think everyone's still with me. And then another problem you can have with CRISPR is you can have off-target. So we talked about on-target, but you can also have off-target effects. So your guide RNA um, that you include, which tells the CRISPR where to stop and where to cut, you want it to match like all 20 of those bases. But what if it decides it's going to match only at a place, a different place, only 17 out of 20 match. It's going to go somewhere else and match not as many because it's feeling lazy that day. It's going to cut there instead. Um, so it's partial match, but not a complete match. So it cuts at the wrong site, and then you have a mutation at the wrong site. So if it cuts at the wrong site, depends on where that site is. It might be site there where there's nothing going on, or you could be creating something like an oncogene, and the patient could develop cancer. So that's a big, big fear with gene editing, that you could be predisposing patients to cancer and doing more harm than good. So the good news is that people are working on the CRISPR molecules now, and they're coming up with these fancy, like, version 2.0 of the molecules. Um, I think the most promising one is this one called base editing here, and where you don't actually make two cuts. You don't, make, you don't cut both strands at once. If you don't cut both strands at once, it's much safer, and you can probably get rid of most of the off-target and the on-target effects. So I'm thinking in the next couple of years, we're going to have a really good handle on the off and the on-target effects, and this is going to become much safer and much more effective. Hopefully. We'll see. You'll have to invite me back again <laughs> in two years, and we'll find out. Or just read about it in Science Magazine. Okay. So look for next-generation CRISPR molecules. Okay. So where are we currently with uh, somatic gene editing? And when I say somatic gene editing, I mean gene editing of ourselves, not of the germline, not of embryos, okay, of, of the bodies now we're talking about. So for cancer, there's at least 15 human clinical trials going on. Um, most of them are for blood disorders, leukemia, lymphoma, multiple myeloma, but people are also starting to do clinical trials for solid tumors as well. Um, a lot of them involve CAR T cells. People know what CAR T cells are? You take, you take the T cells out. You do gene therapy, right? You put in a chimeric antigen um, T cell receptor gene, and then you, um, that, is, that will attack the B cells. And at the same time, you can CRISPR three or four gene, other genes to fine-tune them. Um, and the way they're, the they're going to be fine-tuning them is to make them more effective but also less dangerous. Because if you know CAR T cells, it, they can, uh, the patient can demonstrate a horrible immune response, and that can be more dangerous than the therapy, um, than the cancer itself. It can be life-threatening immune response from the CAR T cell therapy. So, um, so using CRISPR, you can actually, you don't have to edit just one gene. In this case that they talked about, at University of Pennsylvania from November, they were editing four genes all at the same time in the same cell, which is pretty cool. Um, so look more for that on cancer, in starting out in CAR-T and then expanding to other things. What about gene rare genetic disorders? Well, sickle cell anemia, not so rare. Um, big efforts are going into sickle cell anemia and beta thalassemia. And so there we have two options. We can either go after the mutation directly and edit it, or remember we talked about knocking out the gene might be even e easier. There's a gene that you can knock out that will actually turn off a repressor of fetal hemoglobin. So that's kind of a double negative. If you turn off the repressor for fetal hemoglobin, you're turning on your fetal hemoglobin, and that way you will at least have fetal hemoglobin even if you don't have beta hemoglobin. Um, and that's a more indirect way of treating it, but maybe simpler. So they're trying both of those things um, uh, for sickle cell and beta cell. Leber's congenital amaurosis is, I don't know if anyone's heard about this. Um, it's a new gene therapy, not CRISPR, but just gene therapy. It was approved in 2017. It's a rare form of blindness. 
And what they do is they take a gene, put it into a viral vector, inject it into the retina of the eye. Has anyone heard about this? Yeah. They inject it into the retina of the eye, and the virus gets taken up by the cell. The protein gets expressed. As the protein gets expressed, it starts to work, and the vision starts to return to the patients. They do one eye at a time. They do the second eye you know, a week or so later. And over weeks to several, like three weeks to three months, vision starts to return. Um, it's a very rare disease. There's only like between 1,000 or 2,000 people in the country that have this. So it's kind of a prototype, and hopefully it can be expanded to other conditions. Um, obviously, it's very expensive. They're charging $800,000 to do it. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it works, apparently. Pretty amazing. Um, and then other clinical trials for other blood disorders, uh, hemophilia, and then there are some clinical trials for some storage disorder, disorders, Hunter and Hurler syndrome underway as well. So hopefully we'll see a lot more of that uh, in the next few years. Infectious diseases are clinical trials going on for HIV. Here you can remove a gene called CCR5. <clears throat> if you do that, it makes it hard for the T cell to take up the virus. Um, so if you can't take up the virus, when they measure the viral titers, they go way down. I don't know yet if it's going to be a cure or just another therapy, but uh, that is also in the works. I see a question? No. Okay. All right, so what are our concerns about these kinds of therapies? Um, again, we still have concerns about the on and off target editing leading to either cancer or other diseases, so we have to watch these patients very carefully. Um, there may be other undesirable consequences that we don't even know about yet. People have suggested if you disable the CCR5 gene trying to um, fix HIV, that you may actually decrease resistance to other viruses, such as the West Nile or influenza virus. Um, sometimes when you do gene therapy using viral vectors, you can get an immune response, and people have even died from that with gene therapy. So that's, that's definitely a concern. You have to be careful with this. And then you have to obviously have um, protection of your vulnerable research subjects um, because all of these therapies now are being done by commercial companies that are for-profit. So, and they're charging a lot of money and, you know, it's, it's um, that is going to be a big issue as going forward. How do we regulate this? And then justice, you know, again, we're charging a lot of money. They're, it's coming from for-profit companies. Who's going to get the therapy? How do we make sure it gets to everybody that needs it? Okay, over time, good. Um, so next up is talking about germline gene therapy. So now gene therapy of embryos, okay? So if you do gene, gene therapy in the embryo, what happens is you'll transmit it to every generation, not just in the body that you're working on, okay? Um, and their paper, a paper came out from China in 2015 showed that researchers were actually doing this. They were doing experiments on embryos using germline gene therapy. Everyone was all up in arms about it, so they got together and decided we need to come out with regulations and recommendations, and a lot of co countries did this. In this country, the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine came out with recommendations. They said if you're trying to do germline enhancement, can't do it. You know, if you're trying to modify physical traits, beyond those of adequate health, like trying to get yourself taller, bigger, stronger, smarter, not, not good, obviously. I mean, it seems obvious, but people are going to do it. Um, and then if, what about if you're doing it just to prevent disease? If you're trying to prevent um, cardiomyopathy or cystic fibrosis, something like that, um, is it okay to do it then? And again, they said we shouldn't be doing it yet, but they realized that it may be something people do in the future and that people may already be doing it. So they decided to come up with a list of regulations that we could use in the future and that, that will need to be met at that time. Um, in the United States, as I said, you can't use federal funds to do uh, research on human embryos, um, but you can use private funds. Okay, so here's the list of... Um, here are a list of conditions that must be met according to this uh, academy that you must have an absence of reasonable alternatives. And the reasonable alternative typically is pre-implantation 
genetic testing, which we already talked about. Um, you can only do it for serious or life-threatening disorders. You need credible data on the risks and benefits. You're going to need ongoing rigorous oversight. Um, you're going to need long-term and multi-generational follow-up. You're going to need input from the public with continued reassessment. And the goal is healthy infants, not designer babies. So they're saying, if we ever do this in the future, this is what we're going to need to do. But of course, the future is now, or the future was actually a year ago. People, if you all heard about this, it was pretty big in the news. It was November 2018. This um, researcher from China, I'm going to butcher his name, but I think it's Hei Zhang Kui. He calls himself JK, um, was a researcher in the Southern University of Science and Technology, announced that he had used CRISPR already to disable the CCR5 gene. Remember, that's the gene that we use for HIV. Um, and he used it in germline gene editing with IVF, and twin girls were born with that. So big uproar. He announced this at a bioethics conference, um, and he, everyone just went berserk. He never, he never got his data published um, because everyone said that it was just a horrible thing that he had done. Um, the reason he said he did it was supposedly to prevent horizontal transmission of HIV from the dad. So the dad was HIV positive, the mom was HIV negative, um, but there really was practically zero risk of transmitting HIV from the dad in that situation, so it really was not a good indication for doing it. Um, and, he, and he just did it anyway. There was lots of questions about um, informed consent, the way he got informed consent from the parents. Um, he didn't go through any kind of IRB board. He didn't, he did it in secret. Nobody really knew he was doing it. Um, so there were lots of problems. Um, he did have to go into um, his uh, confinement with armed guards outside of his apartment. And the latest I heard was that um, from a newspaper report like three weeks ago from China that He'd been sentenced to three years in jail plus a $450,000 fine. I don't know if that's true or not. That was just one newspaper report. But in any case, um, I don't think he's going to be coming back um, to that university anytime soon. So, um, so not a good situation there. Um, supposedly, Chinese government is monitoring the girls. Um, I know one of the researchers at University of Pennsylvania that works on CRISPR, and he had an opportunity to review his data um, and that he wanted to publish but can't get published. And he said there is a lot of mosaicism in the girls, and which is a risk of doing this on germline uh, in embryos that you can get mosaicism and a lot of off-target effects as well. So they're very concerned about the long-term effect on the girls but the um, Chinese government is monitoring them, and I don't think we're going to hear any, any results from that. Yeah? Off-target would be mutations, mutations in other genes in other places within the genome. Um, and we, he wants, this researcher from Penn wants the data published so that other people can look at it and analyze it and try to make some predictions. But Chinese government's not going to release it, I don't think. So, um, and again, the, the sad part is there's, there was one more ongoing pregnancy at the time, but the Chinese government has not released what happened with that pregnancy um, at all. So we don't have any information about that. So, so um, with regard to germline gene editing, I, I mean, as a medical geneticist, really, I find it hard to find a situation where you need to do germline gene editing um, that for something that you can't already do for PGD. So for PGD, we can do almost anything except maybe if parents are both homozygous for an autosomal recessive condition, like if, if they're both, they both have CF themselves maybe, because then all of their offspring will have CF. You know, that may be something like that. Um, other than that, there aren't a lot of indications for doing germline gene editing. Um, and then the safety, we, we kind of talked about. So, um, so we have a few minutes, five minutes to talk about global health. Um, gene drive, has anyone heard of gene drive? So gene drive is when you put the, now, now we're get, talking not about humans anymore, we're talking about plants and animals and efforts to improve global health. So gene drive is when you put the whole CRISPR machinery into the um, germline of the plant or the animal 
and that gets transferred to every generation. So you're, you CRISPR every generation as it comes up, and it's a very fast way to move something through a generation, okay, uh, to move something through a species. So in the case of mosquitoes, and the reason why people want to work on mosquitoes is because malaria causes so many deaths, almost half a million deaths annually, and other viruses there, such as the dengue, West Nile, etc. Um, and they'd like to, if they could get rid of the mosquito population that was doing this, then they could save a lot of lives. Um, so you can inject the CRISPR machinery as well as a gene that would um, make only male mosquitoes, okay? So only males would be born. Why is that good? Well, males don't bite, only females bite, and so males don't transmit. And if you only have males being born, then they won't have anybody to mate with, and eventually the population will crash. And they think that then um, malaria will stop. That's the only way they'll be able to stop malaria, because in the some of the countries where malaria is becoming so prevalent, it has become, um, the mosquitoes have become resistant to the insecticides that they're using. So um, there is, obviously you have to get buy-in from the local communities where you want to do this. There is one community, I'm going to butcher the name here too, Burkina Faso, saying that right? And West Africa has agreed to um, let uh, a group of mosquitoes be released there that was uh, created in Italy. And this has been funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And uh, so we'll see what happens there. No. Nope. Also, tick-borne diseases. Um, again, on uh, Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, there were some researchers from MIT that went there and wanted to do the same thing there with mice. Um, they're not killing the mice. They're making the mice resistant to tick bites. So the tick would bite the mouse and then the tick would die. And that would help um, stop the spread of Lyme disease. And they did actually get permission from Chappaquiddick Island residents to do this. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Interesting. Um, okay, also agriculture. So big changes coming in agriculture. So we all like to go to Whole Foods and eat our um, organic fruits and vegetables, right? Um, but global food production is going to need to increase by as much as 70% to support the growing world's population. So do we need genetically modified organisms in order to feed all these people is the question. Um, suggested that we need to reduce waste via pest and weed control from insects and mites, mites because currently it's causing $470 million annual loss of crops. So if we could make the crops resistant by putting in a gene, by CRISPR, um, that would help tremendously. Also, uh, they're using CRISPR to try to make crops more tolerant to stresses such as drought, try to make rice more tolerant to salt, uh, try to make things like potatoes more tolerant to cold. Um, so these are things that are currently being worked on. In animals, they're trying to increase resistance to things like mad cow disease and African swine fever, et cetera. So um, these are things that are being worked on um, in agriculture. So again, supported by people like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Google, DARPA, which is a little scary because that's the United States Department of Defense. Um, so we worry about bioweapons uh, with this, but they're all funding CRISPR-related efforts to improve global health. So what are our concerns about this? Um, again, oversight and regulation. It's not all coming from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. A lot of this is coming from private companies, again, with, um, that are concerned about the bottom line. And we don't know about the downstream risks to the ecosystem of changing or even eliminating. Even something as nasty as mosquitoes may have unknown um, you know, problems that we can't foresee at this time and that we may um, regret later. Also, malevolent parties could use this as a, a weapon, a bioweapon, um, to interfere with agriculture. And then people are upset that small groups of scientists should be making these kinds of decisions for the entire planet. You know, that, that's not right. So, so conclusions for gene editing is that technology is proceeding uh, for somatic gene editing with clinical trials in both cancer and genetic disorders. Um, true indications to perform germline gene editing are quite rare, 
because of uh, the technology of pre-implantation genetic testing. Society as a whole needs to be included in discussion shaping the future of gene editing in this country and globally. And unfortunately, germline gene editing technology will very likely proceed despite any regulations, laws, or barriers that we may place. So we do have some references up here, up here, if anyone would like to grab some on their way out, and I will be available for questions. And thank you for your attention. <laughs>